is true of your heart this morning. Consider it. Is this what your heart wants as we come together in worship? Do we want to see more of Jesus? Not just to go through the routine steps of going through a church service, but that we actually have a desire in the depths of who we are that wants to see more of who He is, to hear what it is that He has to say to us through the Word this morning. We're going to continue in John chapter 12. We've been working our way through it. we still got um, probably about two weeks left of it, and then we'll kind of take a break for a moment, kind of hit a, a very key dividing line in the Gospel of John after chapter 12, and then we'll kind of do something else as we get through the holidays, and we'll pick back up in January. So we're working our way through... Um, Chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. Let's go ahead and pray as we open God's Word this morning. Father, may what we just sang be true. Open our ears and help us to listen. Open our eyes that we might see more of who you are. May we grow in our love for Jesus and for you as we study your word this morning. May this not just be some empty routine for us. But may your word and your spirit speak into the depths of our souls. we would find ourselves loving and more satisfied in Jesus than by anything in this world. Help us this morning. Help us to have removed anything from our minds or our hearts that would hinder us from hearing your word and responding to your word. spirit work in us this morning, Father. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Consider that scenario for a moment. A man in his cell frantically writing darkness all over his walls, trying to make sure that he makes the sun go away. Right? It's a bizarre attempt to really do any such thing. And so it is with trying to diminish God's glory. Just because people refuse to worship God doesn't mean his glory gets lessened. This morning, we see a crowd that continues to not see God's glory in Jesus, but that doesn't make the glory fade away. In fact, as Jesus continues to speak about his approaching death, we see that God's glory is going to be powerfully displayed at the cross. The very moment the Jews thought that they had defeated Jesus ends up being the most supreme display 
of who God really is. So let's go ahead and look at our passage this morning. We're going to start in John 12, start verse 27, and then we're going to just kind of take that whole paragraph. So it's just the first half of verse 36. Um, We'll do the second half next week. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So we saw that Jesus was having this conversation last week with some Greeks that came and had wanted to see Jesus. And now we see that he's continuing this conversation and he begins this next part with a sobering reality in verse 27. He says, my soul is troubled. This isn't some glib situation for Jesus. He knows what's about to happen He knows that his death is approaching. He knows that his death by a cross is nearing. And he is troubled by it. He's troubled deeply in his soul knowing what he is about to face. Even troubled enough to say, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's even worth considering here that he, he might need to ask the Father to save him from his death. And while this verse just mentions it very quickly, most of us are familiar with the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he says this, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But we also know what immediately follows that, right? Yet, not my will, but your will be done. And in the same way, right after he says, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, Jesus corrects it, in a sense. And so what we see here is your first point. The troubled son pursues his father's glory. And by corrects it, I don't mean that Jesus is somehow sinning by saying that he wants to be saved from this hour. It's not sin by any means, because what he's doing ultimately is he's still willing to submit himself what the Father's doing here. 
In fact, what we're going to find out here is that Jesus is in pursuit of his Father's glory, and he's willing to go to the cross for it. Last week, we saw that the hour has come for the Son of Man, for Jesus to be glorified. This week, we see that Jesus' glorification also means the Father's glorification. They coincide with each other, and they're not exclusive to each other. You may even say that they're the same Glory, that's how we see it in other parts of, of Scripture described. So immediately after asking for possible salvation from the sour, Jesus follows it up in verse 27 with what? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Finding a way out of his death is not a possibility for him. It's not in the cards. Why? Because there is a purpose in this. A purpose that the Son is pursuing after, that He's not going to abandon no matter what. A purpose He is committed to, even if it leads to His own death. What is the purpose? Verse 28. Father, glorify Your name. Jesus, as the Son of God, is fully committed to the glory of His Father. And he knows that the death that he is coming close to is going to be for his Father's glory. For his own glory, but only for his own glory because it's also for his Father's glory. No matter how deeply troubled his soul is about knowing he is going to have to face his Father's wrath on the cross, Jesus says, I'm still going to pursue the glory of the Father. But it's not just Jesus who pursues this glory. As soon as Jesus requests for the Father to glorify his name, what do we see? This miraculous, this amazing moment take place. The Father responds to the Son. Now sometimes I think we glance over this, right? Because maybe we've read over these stories before. But just imagine this for a moment. There's only three times in the whole life of Jesus that we know of that are recorded in the Gospels only three times that we see the Father's voice actually come and speak to His Son. We see it at His baptism, at the beginning of His ministry. We see it at the transfiguration when Jesus takes three of His disciples up on the mountain and Elijah and Moses appear with Him. And this moment. That's it. Three times in all of Jesus' ministry, maybe all of His life that we know of, that the Father's voice actually comes and booms out for people to hear. This is a serious moment. And so Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And his father responds to him. And his father shows that he's committed to the same thing his son just asked him for. Verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. Past tense, right? Everything that's happened in the Old Testament. How many times in the Old Testament over and over is God say, I'm doing this for my name's sake, for his glory. And then everything that Jesus has been doing up until this point. All the way in John's gospel, all the way back in chapter 1, he told us everything Jesus was doing was revealing who the Father was, revealing the glory of the Father. So the Father says, I have glorified it, but then also I will glorify it again. 
lining up with Jesus' request, the Father says, I will glorify my name again at the cross. Now, we're going to see Jesus describe this in a few verses of how this glory looks and what what it is that this glory actually means to be played out. But I want us to understand just for a moment how weighty this matter is. Because if we heard anybody in our world make such a claim that Jesus, the Son, and the Father just made, we'd be very resistant of such a claim, wouldn't we? Imagine... One of your family members or one of your co-workers saying, I'm going to operate every part of my life for my glory. What would you think? You'd likely be hesitant to be near that person. Isn't that quite arrogant for someone to say? But not so with God. It is nowhere near arrogant for God to say such a thing. We realize that no human being should seek his own glory, but we should realize that is exactly all that God should be seeking after. Because if God were to seek the glory of someone or something other than himself, he would cease to be God anymore. It would be an admission that some honor, some worship, some glory, some value belongs to a person or a thing that's not him. And that's not true. Glory, honor, value isn't placed on anything except for Him. We only receive our value as human beings being made in the image of Him, His glory. Our value has only come from our Creator. Now that's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes, that there is an actual being that God Himself can say, all glory is mine and I will pursue all things for my own glory. That's hard for us, but that's exactly the reality of what Jesus and the Father are both talking about here. Pursuing God's glory is the only glory that deserves pursuit. Amen? So we should ask ourselves if our pursuits match that of the Father and the Son. Because what we find out when we come to the crowd is it's very possible to see and hear Jesus pursuing the Father's glory and hear the Father respond in commitment to his own glory, but for the people to still miss that glory entirely. You see your your second point in the outline. The deaf crowd, act one. Because there's an act two to come later. As soon as the Father speaks his commitment to glorify his name again at the cross, look at how the crowd reacts in verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Wow. Now we don't understand what really all happened. We don't know if the people standing there actually heard the words that the Father said. We don't know that. They could have been deaf even to those words and just heard a noise of some sort. Right? We we don't know all the details of it. But regardless, what did Jesus just say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, glorify your name. And immediately, something starts booming. Whether they hear the words or not, as soon as Jesus starts talking to his Father, all of this starts happening. And what does the crowd say? That must have been thunder. Or an angel. They're completely deaf to the reality that this is the voice of the Father 
himself speaking to his son. And to us, this is absolutely appalling. The father speaks audibly, and the crowd says, that's not the father. How incredibly blind and deaf do you have to be to miss that? But it's not just the crowd. It's not just the crowd that has some sort of severe case of unbelief. Because, my friends, we have God's voice, the Word of God, that all sorts of people find it easy to reject and find it easy to refuse. That I'm not going to look at it, I'm not going to listen to it. To consider our Bibles as less important than hearing the Father's audible voice, to consider our Bibles less life-changing than if we were to hear God's audible voice, is to live in the same unbelief as this crowd. Jesus, then, with the crowd, goes on to say, this voice was for your sake, not mine. But unfortunately, the only result for this crowd in the fact that they reject this voice is a result of judgment. The fact that they reject the Father's voice proves that they're going to continue to reject Jesus, which is ultimately going to lead Jesus to the cross. But if the glory of the Father's voice was not enough, Jesus describes now what is going to happen through the cross, how the glory of God is going to be displayed as Jesus goes to his death. Your third point in the outline, God's glory at the cross. And we see three specific ways that Jesus tells us God's glory is going to be made known in the cross. First, we see the glory of judgment. Verse 30 and 31. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And then the first part of 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now that it is the hour of Jesus' death at the cross, it is now also the hour of judgment to come upon the world. Now, when we think of judgment, we often think of some future event, don't we? Where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And while what Jesus is saying here is not the same as that future judgment that we all think of, They are related to each other. It's different than that final enactment of that judgment for all eternity. But this judgment is related in that the defining line, the basis for that judgment and this judgment, becomes the cross. How people respond to Jesus' death on the cross becomes the baseline for judgment, now and in the future, and for all eternity. Consider it like a basketball court, right? There's a baseline at each end underneath the baskets. To be on one side of the baseline is to be out of bounds. To be inside is to be in the area of play. To reject the death of Christ is to be out of bounds. It is that you have missed the glory of the cross, but to be One who trusts in the death of Christ means you're in play or that you have seen God's glory at the cross. 
Now the question that arises is how, how is judgment display God's glory? And I think what we have to be careful of is we cannot equate God's glory with God's goodness. We cannot equate the two. God's goodness is an attribute that displays his glory, but his glory is not only displayed in the attribute of his goodness. Does that make sense? God's goodness displays his glory, but his goodness is not the only attribute that displays his glory. God also has other attributes. God has holiness. God has righteousness. God has justice. And so if God's glory is revealing who God is, then when God reveals his justice, that is revealing his glory. And so that's what we see at the cross is God's justice in dealing with sin. Think of it even in an earthly realm. Who wants a local judge that shows only grace and no justice? Who wants someone to be able to commit murder or any other crime, and the judge says, eh, you're fine, go ahead. No time to be done, just grace. Who wants that kind of judge in this world? So why would we think that God himself, the creator of justice, would be any less just than the judges we want in our earthly realm. You want a judge that is just, one in this world and one for all eternity. And by the cross, we see God's glory and his justice in two ways. First, those who believe in Christ have their sins justly paid for by Christ. Those who believe in Jesus have their sins paid for with justice, By Jesus. Jesus justly receives the payment for our sin. So God executes his justice on Jesus for those who are saved, but for those who don't trust in Jesus, he executes justice by this judgment. By the fact that they, for all eternity, will have to pay for their own sins. Christ didn't pay for their sins because they didn't trust in Christ. They didn't believe in him. So God is just, and that is part of his glory. His justice and his grace do not contradict each other. Even if it's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes, they don't contradict each other because God can't contradict himself. He can't do it. So we have God's glory in judgment. But then second, we have a glory that you'll be maybe much more easy to agree with. The glory of Satan's defeat. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. At the cross, the ruler of this world, Satan himself, finds himself in defeat. When he thought he had accomplished victory over God is the very moment that he actually was being conquered. The serpent has bitten the heel, but the Savior 
has crushed his head. Amen? If you have trusted and share in Christ's death and resurrection, then you can be sure of this. God, the Father, hears no accusation from Satan about you. God hears no accusation from Satan about you if you've trusted in Christ because he's already been defeated and cast out. You may still hear them. While you're in this world, you may still hear these accusations. But realize this, the accusations of your sin, your sin itself holds no weight with God anymore. Satan has been cast out. And you can be sure of this. The more closely you walk with Jesus, the less Satan will have power in your life. The less his accusations will mean, the closer you walk with the one who's already cast him out. And you can also be sure of this, that the day Jesus comes again is the day you will be eternally saved from ever hearing those accusations again. God's glory is displayed in his defeat of Satan. And last, we see the final glory in verses 32 and 33. The glory of salvation for the nations. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As Jesus is lifted up, he draws all people without distinction to himself. And this is specifically by his death on the cross he is about to die. That's what the lifting up means here. Now we've touched on this in recent weeks, even last week, and seen how the death of Jesus is going to gather those who have been scattered throughout the world. His death is not just for the Jews, but it's for people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We have to be careful here. If we were to say that when Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself, we think that that means all people will come to Jesus and be saved, that negates the judgment Jesus just talked about. He just said that there's going to be judgment by the cross, that the cross is the defining line of those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. So this clearly is not talking about all people in the history of the world are all going to come to Jesus and be saved. That's not how it works. It's saying all people without distinction, all sorts of people. In fact, while our translation translates it as, I will draw all people to myself, it literally says, I will draw all to myself. We use that word people to kind of help us gain understanding of it, but it literally just says, I will draw all to myself. Because we also have to remember that Jesus is restoring all of creation in the midst of his death and resurrection. And when he comes again, creation itself is going to be restored and renewed. So it's now it's people of all nations, but there's even bigger than that. But the point is, this doesn't mean Every single person, it means all sorts of people. And this should strike us deeply. We've talked about this before, but 
It is only by salvation going beyond the Jews, beyond Israel, to the nations. It's only by salvation going to those ends that any of us are sitting here this morning. Our only hope for us to be saved this morning here at Switzerland Baptist Church is the fact that the gospel has gone to the nations. So God's glory is displayed in not limiting his salvation by the cross to only those who are part of a certain group of people, but by the good news of Christ's death and resurrection spreading throughout the world, spreading to the ends of the earth throughout history. But guess what? Now we come to the crowd again. This crowd that was deaf to the Father's voice earlier now proves themselves to be deaf to the Son's voice, right? So we have the deaf crowd, Act 2. Jesus just described the glory of God that's going to be displayed at the cross, the judgment for those who reject the cross, the casting out of Satan who rules this world, and the salvation for all nations who will be drawn to Jesus by the cross. But this crowd has a challenge to this glory that Jesus spoke of. We see it in verse 34. Now there's multiple pieces that they're putting together here, so I want to help us see it, how it all fits together. First, they mention their scripture. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, right? Now when we think of law, we probably just think of the first five books of the Old Testament, but they would have used the law possibly to refer to the entire Old Testament, right? So their whole point is our scriptures, the Old Testament, says that the Christ will remain forever. The Messiah will remain forever, for all eternity. And there is elements of that all over the place in the Old Testament, that there is an eternal aspect to the Messiah that's going to come, to the Son of David that's going to reign forever on the throne. But now they link Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man with also the term Christ. Because in the next question, we see them use Son of Man. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Now, by lifting up here, they don't mean exaltation. By lifting up here, they mean they understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to be lifted up. He means he's going to die. And so their question is, if our Old Testament says the Christ remains forever, how can you say that the Son of Man, also the Messiah, is going to die? How did those two things fit together? So it makes sense, then, their last question. Who is this Son of Man? What kind of Messiah, what kind of Son of Man remains forever, yet dies? That makes absolutely no sense. And we can see how they've come to this conclusion, can't we? I mean, just logically speaking, we can see how maybe they've made sense of this in their minds. If someone's supposed to come and reign forever as the Messiah, how is it that he's going to die just three years into his ministry? But again, the problem is the same problem they had before with the Father's voice. They're blind to the glory of God and they're deaf to the word of God. The Old Testament spoke of the death of the Messiah along with his eternal reign. And remember what just happened a few sermons back for us, but just a chapter back in John's Gospel. Jesus displayed the glory of God by raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Now, he says, by his death, he will draw Jews and Gentiles. By his death, he will judge the world. And by his death, he will defeat Satan. When this crowd should be rejoicing in the glory of God about to to be displayed at the cross, they instead start to question it. So Jesus gives them a final invitation here at the end. As we come to these last verses, Jesus summarizes how they need to respond to him while they still have the chance to believe, before he ends up at the cross. He tells them to believe and walk in the light. The time is drawing near that the light will appear to be consumed by darkness when Jesus dies. So he calls on them to believe and walk, while he, as the light of the world, is still with them. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So I want to focus, there's two commands that Jesus gives here. Believe and walk. I want to focus just on those two things. What does it mean to believe in the light? What does it mean to walk in the light as we finish up here? What does it mean first to believe in the light? First, to believe in the light means to understand apart from Christ, you are in the darkness and you don't know where you're going. That's what verse 35 says. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Right? So all of us, apart from Christ, are outside of the light, which means we're in darkness. But it's not just darkness now, it's darkness forever, because what did Jesus just say is going to happen if you don't turn to the light? If you don't walk in the light, what's going to happen? Darkness will overtake you. So you're walking in darkness, you don't know where you're going, darkness is going to overtake you unless you believe in the light. Your only hope is to turn from the darkness and believe in Jesus. And as you believe in him, verse 36 tells us, you now become sons of light. Remember what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John of what's necessary to enter God's kingdom? You must be born again. You must enter into God's family by believing in the Son of God, the light. And that's exactly what we see here. You believe and you become a son. You become a child of the light. So that's belief. Recognize you're in darkness. Darkness is going to overtake you unless you turn, believe in the light, and you become a child of the light. But then Jesus also says to walk in the light. Right? That's what he tells us in verse 35. You see, because to turn from darkness... To be born again and become a son of light cannot just be a one-moment decision. 
If that doesn't play out the rest of your life, that you continue to walk in the light, then you prove that you probably aren't really a child of the light. Those who have become children of light continue to walk in the light. So while, yes, it may start at a single moment in your life, it must play out the rest of your life. You must continue to walk in this the rest of your life. Otherwise, you may prove yourself to still be in darkness. So I want us to take this whole passage, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but some, some truths we've learned in this passage and look at what does it mean to walk in the light. And we see three things. First, it means you walk by the cross. Jesus has been pushing this idea of his glory and the Father's glory throughout last week's passage and this week's passage. And they're all funneling towards one event, the death of Jesus on the cross. Your only hope to be saved from your sin is by the cross. Your only hope to receive the Holy Spirit so that you can fight sin is by the cross. Your only hope to have victory over Satan in life is by the cross. Your only hope not to face eternal judgment is by the cross. Does that describe your life? Do you view yourself and the people around you only through the lens of the cross? Paul, when he goes, or actually when he writes to Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, he tells them, when I came to you, I vowed to know one thing, and that was Christ and him crucified. Does that sound like us? That the one thing we vow to know in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs, in our, wherever we're at, the one thing we vow to know is Christ and him crucified. This should stir us, not only to thankfulness for our own salvation, but now a desire to make the cross known to those around us. So that's the first thing. We walk by the cross. Next, we walk by God's word. We saw how the crowd was deaf to God's word from the Father and the Son. But that's not true by those who have truly believed in Christ. We are told by Scripture that every word we have is breathed out by God. Every word of the Old and New Testament is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. To give us everything we need to live the life that God has called us to live. So this demands for us who claim to be in the light, that walking in the light means we walk by God's word. It demands that we know God's word and that we follow God's word. If you think coming to church service on Sunday morning that I'm just going to give you some moral lesson on being a good person, you have no comprehension of what this really is. You have no idea how weighty I consider this to be. And if you're troubled, if you're troubled by anything I suggest from the pulpit that needs to be true of your life as I explain this word, you have to come to one of two conclusions. Either I've interpreted God's word wrongly, 
which I would consider a serious offense, right? I'm not saying it's impossible, because I'm, I'm, I'm surely human, right? I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying it's a serious offense. I would be deeply bothered. I spend my entire week making sure that everything I say is trying to be faithful to what his word says. So that's your first option. The second option is you simply just didn't like what God's word had to say. Those are your two options. If you're troubled by what I suggest from the pulpit, what I say from the pulpit, according to God's word, is either I've done it wrong or you don't like it. The way I view it, I'm not the chef. I'm the waiter. I'm just bringing the food to the table. And I'm trying my best to describe to you what the dish is like. The only problem that arises is Either I described the dish wrongly to you, and so you're upset by when you actually taste the dish, or you're upset when you taste the dish because you don't like the taste of it. My fear is that so many Christians refuse to open their Bibles in their homes during the week or wherever because one of two reasons. They either think it has little importance to their life, I have other priorities that need done first, or they don't like what it has to say. But those who believe in Jesus, those who claim to believe in Jesus, those who walk in the light, walk according to his word. Everything we do here on Sunday mornings, I try to make sure it's saturated with what God's Word says. The songs that we sing, I go through them when it's my turn to choose them. I go through them, and I'm making sure, is there anything that could give even the slightest hint of something that's not true in Scripture? When we come together and make known our prayer concerns, I want to read Scripture and make sure our our minds are filtering even our prayer requests through the lens of God's Word. We dedicate more than half of our time here on Sunday mornings to reading God's Word and studying God's Word. I'm not going to have our church be some sort of entertainment, some sort of performance-driven place. That's never going to last. And so everything we do, everything I do, I'm going to do the best I can to make sure that it's accurate and faithful to the truth. So ask yourself the question, what place does God's word have in your life? Is it a once a month thing? Is it a once a week thing on Sunday mornings? Or is it as it should be, a daily feeding of your soul because it's God himself speaking to you? We have to grasp the weight of that. And last, we come to the overall purpose of this whole passage. We are to walk for God's glory. You only believe in Jesus and what happens on the cross because the eyes of your heart have been opened to what God's, how God's glory is displayed at the cross. 
At the very moment that you first believed, it's because you saw how your life is now meant to bring Him glory and not yourself glory anymore. Does that desire still describe your life? I'm not asking whether you try to be a nice person to the people around you. Surely, following Jesus means being compassionate and merciful. I'm not negating that. But it's not only that. Remember, according to this passage, where God's glory is supremely displayed at, the cross of Christ. To pursue God's glory means now you pursue making known that cross. You make it known to yourself. You make it known to the people in your home. You make it known to your friends, your co-workers, whoever it is. Because when you share in Christ's death, when you see God's glory in Christ's death, it's not about you anymore. It's not about, well, what's this person going to think about me if I talk about Jesus with them? It's not about, well, what is the consequence if I talk about Jesus? It's not about that anymore. It's about God's glory, not your own. It's not about having the approval of other people anymore. It's about God's approval. It's about God's glory, His honor, His name being made known throughout the world. Everything in our lives is supposed to be making much of Him. Making sure the whole world hears how glorious He really is, regardless of whether they accept it or not. God's glory can't be diminished, remember, from the beginning. So brothers and sisters, let me urge you this morning as we close. Believe and walk in the light while you still can. Jesus warns the people in this passage that they're to respond to him while they still can. He wants them to believe before he dies on the cross. Why? Because after the cross, it just gets that much harder to believe in him. Look what happens to all of his disciples who go to make known the cross. Most of them, if not all of them, end up being killed for it. So many of them face death for walking by the cross, for seeking after God's glory. And so Jesus says, while you still have time, believe and walk in the light. Now, you might ask me, well, our time's not limited in the sense that Jesus is going to die again. No, but your time is limited by two things. One, by your own death, or by Jesus' return. Which could be soon. Praise God if it is. So I'm urging you this morning, don't let another day go by. Don't let another second go by. where you don't believe and walk in the light. If you haven't turned from walking in darkness and believed in Jesus and what he did on the cross, believe in the light today. And I want to give a warning here. That if you think you've believed, but you're not walking, if you're not walking by the cross, walking by God's word, walking for God's glory then you may want to reconsider if you truly believed in the first place. You can't separate the believing and the walking. They're distinct, but they're not separate. 
The belief leads to the walking. And for those of you who are here and you have believed and you are walking for God's glory, here's my urge. Keep walking. With assurance, know this. You can walk knowing you've been rescued by the cross. You can walk with assurance that you have, even right now, victory over Satan in your life. And you can walk for the glory of God. The God who has glorified his name. The God who is glorifying his name. And the God who will always glorify his name. Let's pray. Father.